0: This is book 11 for my 2022 reading list. Well, there's a famous battle. It's called the Battle of Cajamarca, and it took place on November 16, 1532, and the Spanish came in under Commander Francisco Pizarro, and they had just 168 soldiers, and they took on the Incan Empire that day, and at the end of that battle, there were thousands of Incans dead on the ground, their ruler, Atahualpa, had been captured, and that was the start of the end of the Incan Empire. You must be thinking, well, if 168 people were against a thousands and uh, thousands of Incans, and there's thousands of Incans dead on the ground, uh, what happened to the Spanish? They, they must have been just decimated. And you'd be wrong, because they lost exactly zero people that day. They had one person get hurt. That was it. So 168 soldiers took on... Thousands of Incans killed thousands and did not lose a single soldier. It's just the most astonishing battle. It has to be the most lopsided battle in history. And it is just so utterly shocking to read about it. How, How can that even happen? And I think that battle encapsulates so many aspects of the clash of civilizations and the clash of cultures. And it, it's, it's almost as if you could take that battle as a starting point and then work your way back from those two vantage points. So work your way back. How did the Spanish get to that point where first they could, they could get from Spain to South America first, just to, to even be able to do that, and then to go in with so few soldiers and just take over an empire in, in one battle? Likewise, you could work your way back from the Incan empire. How did they get to that point? How, how, how did they get to where they could so easily be taken over like that? How, why did they not have the weapons that the Spanish had? Why did they not, why did they not even think that this could be a possibility? And you could just kind of work your way back from that battle. And in fact, that's exactly what Jared Diamond does in the book, guns and germs, guns, germs, and steel. Because if you if you take that story back far enough, you can learn how one group could have advanced so far ahead of another group and be able to go in to an empire with just 168 people and take it over and just have one wounded soldier at the end of that. Well, Sapiens does uh, likewise. And, and in fact, Harari mentions the Battle of Cajamarca in, in this book as well. Uh, But he takes it back and he starts the very first page of the book. He's talking about 13.5 billion years ago. And then he gets into 70,000 years ago when the cognitive revolution started in Homo sapiens, and up to the agricultural revolution that started 12,000 years ago, and then into the scientific revolution that started 500 years ago. And so the first third of this book is It covers ancient history, and in ancient history, I don't mean like Moses' ancient history. I mean like ancient, ancient, ancient history, like way back. And then the last two thirds of this book are are more recent history. The first part, it just it it seems like it's just kind of full of conjecture. I mean, this is from what we. What we can gather, this is the best that we can do in terms of what we think happened. The second part of the book reads more like a a history history book, and and it pulls out some of the grand sweeping trends uh, and turning points in that more recent history. So the first part of the book reads like Guns, Germs, and Steel. The second part of the book reads kind of like a Thomas Friedman book where he's, he's trying to tie together recent history into a, into a narrative, into in a kind of a clean narrative. I found the first third of the book infuriating at times, and I, I did not enjoy it. This, the last two thirds of the book, though, were, were quite interesting and, and enlightening, and I, I enjoyed those. This is the third book I've read by Harari. And for, the, for this reading project. So I, I read Homo Deus in, in 2018, and then I, I think I read his most recent book in 2020. And I find Harari very hard to read. And I'm going to try to explain why the best I know how, but I, I can never pinpoint what he believes. But he's making extraordinary comments and statements in his book. To to where I, I I don't know if he really believes what he's writing though, or if he's just stating what other people say and then, you know, if this is what this if this, if this is true, then the logical conclusion of that is this. I, I found that to be the case in his book Homo Deus. It was almost as if, you know, here, here are the things that we believe as a culture, here, here are some things in directions we're moving, and if this keeps going in this direction, this could be the, the outcome of that. S- similarly, in, in Sapiens, uh, th- there are just a lot of things where, especially in the first third of the book, I'm not sure if if this is what Harari thinks or if he's just stating what other people think. But it's such bold statements that I have a hard time if you if you're just throwing these statements out without actually believing them. And I don't know why it bugs me so much, but it, it really bugs me when I read Harari and, and I I can't pinpoint that down. And and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more in, in later in this episode. But um I've always had a hard time reading Harari and, and that's Kind of the main reason why. For reading stats for this book, it's 416 pages. It took me 11 hours and 24 minutes to read it. That was over a 14-day period, so it was it was roughly 30 pages per day. I read it between March 21st and April 3rd of this year, 2022. So for the rest of this this episode, uh, there'll be two more segments. Uh, the next segment, I will cover three things that I liked about this book and then three things that I didn't like. And then in the final segment, I'll end it as I do all my episodes with the one thing, my one key takeaway from Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Now into segment two. And the things that I liked and disliked about the book. And I, I just realized when I was putting these together that uh, in, in the first segment there, I mentioned that I found the first third of the book infuriating and the, the last two thirds quite interesting. Well, all the things I liked are in that second two thirds of the book and the things I didn't like are in the first third of the, the book. So uh, here's, the, here's the first thing I liked. And, and it goes back to that discussion of of the Battle of, of Cajamarca. You know, why, why did how did some civilizations, how were they able to go in and just decimate others? Uh, How were they so far advanced that they could just do that? And so here's part of the answer and part of the answer that Harari gives. So here's on page 284, the key factor was that the plant-seeking botanist and the colony-seeking naval officer shared a similar mindset. Both scientists and conqueror began by admitting ignorance. They both said, I don't know what's out there, and they both felt compelled to go out and make new discoveries, and they both hoped the new knowledge thus acquired would make them masters of the world. European imperialists set out to distant shores in the hope of obtaining new knowledge along with new territories. End quote. And while I was reading this, I was thinking about the second book that I read this year, and that was *The Black Count*. And it was about novelist Alexandre Dumas. It was about his father, who was just this stud and just had uh, incredible life experiences. One of those was being a commander in Napoleon's army. And so, um, Alex Dumas, the the father, he he accompanied Napoleon on this trip to Egypt, and and. While he was there, uh, there's a lot of talk about the scientists that were with them, and so I, as I'm reading this in *Sapiens*, I'm thinking, oh, this is this is just like the black count I read earlier, you know, where where uh, Dumas is is part of of France and he's going into Egypt, um, and and so I'm thinking that, and then right. On that same page later down, uh, Harari says this, When Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1798, he took 165 scholars with him. Among other things, they founded an entirely new discipline, Egyptology, and made important contributions to the study of religion, linguistics, and botany. End quote. But I, just, I loved that that section in, in that that uh, chapter because it, it gave a new idea of why what was the impetus to go to these different countries? Was it purely political? Was it purely scientific? No, Harari says it was a mixture of the two, and the fact that those could could cohabitate together, and and the scientists could be on the same boats as the 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 empire builders that that pushed this along even even faster. And then there was this desire, uh, in in especially with Egypt, you know, in in France they're like they're wanting to know more about Egypt, and the scientists are helping them to. To know more about the country as well, so kind of interesting way to to consider consider that. The second uh, thing I really enjoyed about the book was just the, the humor of Harari, and it's it's like insightful humor. Uh, he's pulling these these threads throughout history, and they just make you chuckle at times. So I wanted to read one here, and this comes later in the book on page three, three forty nine. The supreme commandment of the rich is invest. The supreme commandment of the rest of us is buy. The capitalist consumerist ethic is revolutionary in another respect. Most previous ethical systems presented people with a pretty tough deal. They were promised paradise, but only if they cultivated compassion and tolerance, overcame craving and anger, and restrained their selfish interests. This was tough for most. This is too tough for most. The history of ethics is a sad tale of wonderful ideas that, ideals that nobody can, can live up to. Most Christians did not imitate Christ, most Buddhists failed to follow Buddha, and most Confucians would have caused Confucius a temper tantrum. In contrast, most people today successfully live up to the capitalist consumerist ideal. The new ethic promises paradise on the condition that the rich remain greedy and spend their time making more money, and that the masses give free rein to their cravings and passions and buy more and more. This is the first religion in history whose followers actually do what they are asked to do. End quote. I just thought that was really funny. The last thing that I enjoyed was towards the very end of the book, and it was Harari's discussion on happiness. What makes uh, people happy? Uh, what makes an individual happy? What makes a group of people happy? And what do we know throughout history about happiness? And not much. I mean, we, you know, other than some writings that we have, but just now we have so many different ways of asking questions of, are you happy? And, and studying that and, and, and all these kind of things. And, and so what have we learned from that? What, what actually constitutes happiness? And so in that section, he, he shares some of the secrets of happiness. And here he goes, family and communities seem to have more impact on our happiness than money and health. People with strong families who live in tight-knit and supportive communities are significantly happier than people whose families are dysfunctional and who have never found or never sought a community to be a part of. Marriage is particularly important. Later on, even the freedom we value so highly may be working against us. This raises the possibility that the immense improvements in material condition over the last conditions over the last two centuries was offset by the collapse of the family and of the community end quote. Later on, he says this in a section called The Meaning of Life. He says, uh, one way to to measure happiness is just to kind of have an equation. So if there's more pleasure than pain, then that would equal happiness. So in, in that sense, you're just seeking Pleasure And the most pleasure you can get out of life. And then that the idea there is that that will make you happy. And and Harari says, well, that's one option. Another is that the finding, the findings demonstrate that happiness is not the surplus of pleasant over unpleasant moments. Rather, happiness consists in seeing one's life in its entirety as meaningful and worthwhile. As Nietzsche put it, if you have a why to live, you can bear almost any how. A meaningful life can be extremely satisfying, even in the midst of hardship, whereas a meaningless life is a terrible, terrible ordeal, no matter how comfortable it is. End quote. That, uh, that's like directly from Man's Search for Meaning, which is one of my favorite books of this entire reading project, but just, just that idea that you, happiness can be outside of whether it's pleasure or pain, like having more pleasure than than pain. And actually amidst pain, there can be happiness. And it actually has more to do with meaning. If, if there's a why behind your life, you can get through almost any how. And it's just such a deep insight and an important insight and really makes you think of of how we consider happiness. And I mean, just watch a Commercial and, and it's going to tell you that if you have this or do this you you'll be happy. Um, but what if what what about that in the context of of whether uh, in the grander scheme of like does your life actually have meaning and that could actually have more importance on happiness levels. So. Great insight there. Uh I, I liked how he tied all that together. That were those were three things that, that I liked about the book. Now three things that I didn't like. And you may just think these are the most petty things, but they really bugged me when I was reading this book. And so I, I, I want to share them and, and be honest with uh with what I think about the book. And and just so you know, like probably four years ago starting this project, I would never dream of of saying bad things about books. Like I, I would just you know, I, I try to find the best out of books, but as I've gone along, there, there are things that bug me, and, and, and a lot of these things are, are, are things that I see in, in a lot of the books that I, I read for this project, and so here are a few that that popped up here. The first is, uh, well, let me just read the section, and then I'll go into it. This is page 28, uh, and it's just a few sentences here. Yet none of these things exists outside of the stories that people invent and tell one another. I'm going to take myself out of the quote, the, the things, none of these things, the, those things that he's referring to are the existence of laws, justice, human rights, uh, the money paid out in fees. And, and so he's saying none of these things, like laws, justice, and human rights, exists outside of the stories that people invent and tell one another. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. End quote. You heard me at the beginning of this episode say that I'm seeking truth in the world's best books. And inherent in that idea is that there is some truth that is outside of the books. Like the books themselves are not the source of truth, but they may be pointing to truth. uh, And and it might just be one little snippet of of truth, but that's what I'm seeking in this project. And so this statement here that... None of these things exists outside of the stories that people invent and tell one another. Uh, It is so anti-ethical to my whole purpose of this project and and a big part of of what I believe. And so it's really hard for me to read that and, and to read it in such a way that it's just such a Straight up statement like that, and, and again, kind of goes back to what I said in the first segment of, of never really knowing, is, is this really what Harari thinks? Or is he just stating what other people think? And and I hate that I you, you can't nail him down in that sense of of knowing if if he thinks this or not, because that's a really bold statement to just kind of flippantly throw out there. And, and that's what he did in Homo Deus too. He, it, it, there's a statement like, well, you know, there's no soul. So because there's no soul, let's just move on and, and here are the ramifications for that. And, and I'm thinking, okay, you just threw out the soul in one page. Uh, I think that kind of needs a little more analysis here or maybe a little more discussion and, and not just flippantly throwing out the soul in, in here just kind of flippantly throwing out that there's anything outside of myths so w- then why why do myths show up in in a number of different countries uh, why Joseph Campbell like uh, showing that there are common myths uh, amongst different groups like why that like why w- why does everything have to be contained? And and I found that so depressing when reading this book. I mean it's 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 almost depressive when you're reading this. Like really everything is just contained in there and in these cultures, like they weren't their stories and myths weren't pointing to something outside of them, uh, outside of even their stories, that it was just all contained in that. It, it, it was just very depressing. There there's no wonder in that. There's no there's no beauty in that. And uh so that was one thing that I that I I, I just did not like. The second thing is uh, best captured towards actually towards the end of the book, but uh, it, it's mostly talked about in the beginning. Uh, but this uh, sentence in towards the back of the book really captures it, and he, here it is. This is the basic lef- lesson of evolutionary psychology: a need shaped in the wild continues to be felt subjectively, even if it is no longer. Ne- really necessary for survival and reproduction. Let me read that again. This is the basic lef- lesson of evolutionary psychology. A need shaped in the wild continues to be felt subjectively, even if it is no longer really necessary f- for survival and reproduction. End quote. I call this paleoronius. And it's... It, Paleo means old or ancient and erroneous, you know what erroneous means. And so I, 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 whenever I come across things like this in, in books, uh, I write that in the margin. I just write paleo erroneous because how do you know? And, and I, let me read another, another thing he says here, cause this kind of gets into more what, what I'm, uh, what I'm talking about here. Uh, this comes on page 41. So today we may be living in high-rise apartments with overstuffed refrigerators, but our DNA still thinks we're in the Savannah. That's what makes some people, some of us spoon down an entire tub of Ben and Jerry's when we find one in the freezer and wash it down with a jumbo Coke and quote. And in the margin there, I said, really, really, how do you know that our DNA still thinks that we're in the Savannah? Really? And, and that's why we eat ice cream to excess and, and then drink a Coke to wash it down I, I write erroneous next to that. Like, I, I hate that. I hate when you take something that, oh, we're, we're a certain way today. And it's because the, our hunter-gatherer people thousands and thousands of years ago had to live this way in order to survive. So now us today, we're this way because of that. Like, you can make anything up saying that. You could make up any narrative about the past. And, and I think it's, I, I don't like it because it's lazy and, and we don't know. And so you're just making up stories at that point if, if, you, if you're writing things like that. And to give Harari credit, he does mention that in other parts where it's like, yeah, that you, we got to be careful when we're doing this, this kind of thing because the, this can happen. But I, I, I dislike it. I, I, I always think back to, I was in my 20s and, and I moved into this loft. And this loft used to be a, a train unloading station. And so there were five train tracks immediately behind this loft. And the first day I moved in, there, there, this is downtown Atlanta, so there's just trains going all night. And it is loud. I cannot sleep. I've slept most of my life just in silence. And now all of a sudden, it's five train tracks behind me, trains going all through the night. The very next night, I slept the entire night. So I had spent my whole life in silence at night and slept fine. The first night was pretty big shock, couldn't sleep. By the second night, I slept and I ended up sleeping better there with all this noise going on than, than in silence. And so, if I can shift in one night how I sleep, like, why do we think that hunter gatherers thousands and thousands of years ago determine how we act now? I, I just find that so astounding. And there was a lot of that in the beginning of this book where, well, they were this way so that's why we're this way or or just even kind of looking back at the past and and uh, like I said in the first thing, there, there's so much conjecture that there's just there's no possible way we can know a lot of these things and uh, I, I, I didn't like it i'm sorry the last thing i did not uh, particularly think was was very good shall i say is his his labeling of chapters um it w- it was almost a mocking so the first uh, uh, chapters 2 3 and 4 are the tree of knowledge a day in the life of adam and eve and the flood and those chapters had nothing to do with those those stories and it was almost like it was almost like uh giving a a alternative view of of that and but using the same titles and uh it, i didn't like that either so sorry i know these are petty things and but also know that these are things that I see come across in, in a number of different books and, the, and they just bug me. And so I'm, I'm sorry that they came up in the Harari book, but that uh, those are three things I did not like in Sapiens. Now into segment three and the one thing, my one key takeaway from Sapiens. And it, and it's this, there's, it's kind of a two sides of a coin deal, and it's, it's this dividing line of uh, where a a, flip, a switch gets flipped. And so the first is a discussion of money, and it made me think of crypto money in, in our sense, but, but um, here's the section. The mere fact that the Medi- that Mediterranean people believed in gold would cause Indians to start believing in it as well. Even if Indians had no real use for gold, the fact that Mediterranean people wanted it would be enough to make the Indians value it. Similarly, the fact that another person believes in cowrie shells, or dollars, or electronic data is enough to strengthen our own belief in them, even if that person is otherwise hated, despised, or ridiculed by us. Christians and Muslims who would not agree on religious beliefs could nevertheless agree on a monetary belief because whereas religion asks us to believe in something, money asks us to believe that other people believe in something end quote and so there there's this this idea that uh that money can take can take a root if if enough people start using it then it then it becomes the currency and even if it's different different companies or <laughs> companies countries if if one group of people uh in in this case he was talking about people in the mediterranean uh if they're if they start value valuing the gold that is in india and the in the the Indians are thinking, okay, what is it about gold that, that you like? But just them seeing other people value gold, they'll begin to value gold as well. It just kind of made me think of, of, uh, of our time where we're seeing cryptocurrencies and, and things gathering uh, notoriety and, and use and, and that sort of thing. Is there, some, is there some point at which the switch will flip and, and it will become uh, completely legit? And it seems to be that way, that, that the more and more people use it, the more and more uh, that, that it becomes legitimate. But, but there is some point where the switch is flipped. On the opposite side, there, there's a point where things can be flipped on the negative side. And this is where Harari talking about myths. And uh, so I'll read this section. A natural order is a stable order. There is no chance that gravity will cease to function tomorrow, even if people stop believing in it. In contrast, an imagined order is always in danger of collapse because it depends upon myths. And myths vanish once people stop believing in them. In order to safeguard an imagined order, continuous and strenuous efforts are imperative. End quote. Uh, th- so this, this section goes on to say that... that there's a there's a point where you can flip the switch the opposite way. And if people stop believing in something, uh, that that can destroy that can destroy as well. So on, on the first example where if enough people believe in it, they'll, they'll adopt uh, cryptocurrency or, or, or gold in, in the case of, of what he's presenting here. Uh, on the opposite side, if there's a myth that people believe, if there's a story that people have been told, maybe it's the founding of the, the country or uh, a religious myth. And, and it, there's, a, there's an, a point there as well where the switch can get flipped. And if, if enough people stop believing in it, if enough people are convinced that what they're believing in is not true, destruction can come from that. Uh, the, just the, the country could, could be destroyed. The, the myth that, that everyone believes of, of the founding, uh, if enough people stop believing that either a new myth is, is required or, or, um, or the other one just ha- has to be completely destructed. And, he he talks about that and just how there is that 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 dividing line. There is that switch where then then it, it just it gets destroyed. So there's either adoption on one side or destruction on the other, and it's just kind of that fine line. It just got me thinking about just a, just a lot of different things, you know. Um, that something can either become part of of what we believe or or how we live or. It can it can go away, and I, it just it it applies to me, so many things. And so I, I finished this book um, a, a few days ago, and it, that's just one thing I've I've been thinking about since then. So to recap, uh, it's a very interesting book. I I loved the second part of it, the 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 final second uh, two thirds of the book. Just a lot of neat. Connection points and a lot of interesting ideas to consider of why things went certain ways. Uh, first, ha- first third of the book I was not didn't like it as much, but uh, but overall a uh, uh, interesting book. As you know from here, Harari goes on to Homo Deus, and the idea there is uh, Homo man and Deus God, so the God man that uh, we if, if things keep moving in a particular direction, uh, certain groups of people may become God men in, in the sense that, uh, and he says the wealthy may be able to start purchasing longer life or better genes or changing their genes or different things like this. And, uh, and all of a sudden you've got almost a God-like people that, Maybe they don't die as early. Uh, maybe they have more stamina. Maybe they are, are stronger. Maybe they don't succumb to disease. And what happens when that's the case? Uh, so that's what happens in, in, in his next book, Homo Dei. He, he goes into that. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I would love to hear from you, uh, especially if you've read Sapiens. I'd love to hear what you got out of the book, uh, things you liked, maybe things you didn't like. Uh, I'd love to hear what you thought of the things that I didn't like. And and if you have another uh, viewpoint on that or um, maybe another idea of what, what Harari was, was saying, I'd love to hear that as well. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And the website is stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I, I also want to note that you can buy this book at Landmark Booksellers in Franklin, Tennessee. You can buy it on the website. We ship anywhere in the United States. I'm the business manager at that bookstore and uh, we have a a section, uh, we call it Smart Thinking, but it is a section of a lot of the books that are from this reading project. And so Sapiens is one of the books in that area. So I'd love if you bought it from from Landmark, that would help support this podcast. And we'd love to ship that book to you. That's gonna do it for for now. until the next episode in a couple weeks keep reading keep learning and keep listening I'm out